Corinthians. And so if you would, turn with me if you've got a Bible uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're using one of the Bibles there uh, in the in the rack in front of you, it's going to be on page 958. We've been working our way through this letter to see how how exactly it is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection mold and shape the church. How does it change us? What does it tell us? And as we enter chapter 11, we're going to start reading in verse 2. Uh, chapters 11 through 14 are all about um, what's happening as the Corinthian church is gathering for worship. So there are some different things that they're doing. They gather just like we gather as the church has gathered for uh, well over 2,000, well right around 2,000 years now. Uh, they gathered around uh, the, the preaching of the word, they probably sang songs, they prayed together, that was normal standard practice for them. Uh, but as they're gathering, there are different things that are happening in this troubled church that Paul needs to address. And the first one we find in chapter 11, verse 2. So we're going to read that now. <clears throat> Paul says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything. And maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if, a wi- for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man not ought to cover his head, ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for recovering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Yep. So so there's that. And yet even this is God's word to us. We believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write those words, not just for the benefit of those in Corinth, but for our benefit as well. So let's go to God in prayer and ask him for his help. Father, like so many things in your word, this situation is foreign to us. Quite frankly, we don't know uh, what's going on here. And so, Lord, we need your help. Holy Spirit, would you uh, soften our hearts? Would you open our ears? Would you help us to understand what you are saying to us in 2018 in Clanton, Alabama, so that we would believe 
in you, trust in you, and grow in your grace. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to give you kind of a window into how I uh, prepare sermons, I usually have to, to write out the passage that I'm preaching. It helps me to slow down, and I usually use about a, a fifth or so of the page over on the margin uh, to make notes, observations, applications, questions. And so if you just looked at my notes, uh, my study notes for this week's passage, you would say, you would see lots of what? How? Why? Angels? Right? So, this is one of those tricky passages. There are lots of things that raise questions for us, uh, things that we don't understand. Uh, and one of the things that we need to remember is that we are catching one side of a phone conversation. Right? We are, we are coming in on, on one end of a conversation where we cannot hear what the other person is saying. Paul is addressing something that is happening in Corinth that we don't fully understand uh, because we're not there, right? It's as if uh, you're catching an email or a text stream, but you only have one side of that dialogue, okay? Uh, so the way, that, the way that we come to that, remembering, yes, this is God's Word, and yes, it is for us. It was first for them. It is also for us through them. So that means that it's for our benefit. So when we come to tricky passages, how do we handle them? What do we do? Uh, and the rule that I tend to follow that I think is a good rule of interpretation, um, and it's true for any kind of reading, but especially in the Bible, is we don't start with the details that are fuzzy that we don't get. We don't, right? We don't start with angels, even though they're referenced here, and even though that might pique our interest, that's not where we start. We start with the big picture, we start with the principle first, and work our way to the details we don't quite understand. And so that's what we're going to try to do this morning, right? And what we see when we, when we apply that rule to this passage, I believe that we discover that this passage is not primarily about hair, head coverings and hair length. Okay, that's not, yes, that's the situation that Paul is addressing, but there is a principle underneath that situation that Paul is most concerned with. And that principle in this passage, this is about, this passage is about authority and submission between a husband and a wife. Right? That's popular. Just look at verse 3, okay? Uh, this is where I think Paul states his principle pretty clearly. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So what's, what Paul is saying is that just as Christ, the Son, is under the authority of the Father, just as man, the, the believing man, is under the authority of Christ, so the wife is under the authority of her husband. See? Wasn't that simple? Let's pray. I'm kidding. All right. Here's what here's what here's what we're going to see. Okay? Here's here's what I believe this passage teaches us and even in the situation Paul's dealing with, first, uh, both man and woman are equally made in God's image. We see that in this passage. But both man and woman, male and female, have different roles before him. So both are equal in God's image, but both have different roles, particularly as it pertains to the husband and wife relationship. They are the same 
but different. Now that understanding uh, flies in the face of some commonly held ideas in our culture, in our society. Right? One cultural assumption that we have typically is that to be equal, that equality is sameness. Right? That to be equal is to be the same. And so because someone is equal, say man and woman are equal, that means that they are the same in what they can do or should want to do or dream to do. Right? And so I realize what we're on tricky territory here, that this is a difficult area because this is an area where the Bible challenges maybe what we consider a cornerstone of American life. But the, the cultural voice says equality is the same as sameness. And the Bible says, no, they are not. Equality is not sameness. And not only does the Bible say this, but nature bears this out. Of course, physiologically, there is a difference between men and women. So that they are equal, right? Our constitution is correct that all men, all people are created equal, but that does not mean that all people are created the same. Men and women are different. So that cultural idea doesn't actually bear out in the real world. For instance, I'm not, uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm not saying I'm for or against any of these examples I'm about to mention. I'm simply pointing out how nature is bearing this out to be true. We now have enough uh, research on women in combat roles to see that men and women's bodies do not respond to the same physical pressure in the same way. What I mean by that is that you can take uh, and has and this has been done, right? You can take a, a a female marine and a male marine, and over the course of time, their bodies will break differently. Okay, in fact, that the male will endure longer, and that the female will have more damage long term as a result of being in combat. Okay, or, or even training for combat. Again, I'm not saying it's either good or bad. I'm simply just pointing out that there is difference there. Currently, uh, the 2018 high school women's track record in, uh, in the state of Connecticut, uh, the holder of the title for 100 and 200 meter dash is a boy who identifies as a girl. And he, um, was able to beat all of his competition. Her, however you want to put that, was able to defeat all of the competition and holds the women's record in the 100 and 200 meter dash. That same boy, as a sophomore, when he competed with other boys, did not even qualify uh, for the state meet. And so we see that there is a physiological difference. Again, not making a uh, moral value judgment at this point, just showing that there is a difference. It's not saying that boys can't be track stars and girls can't be track stars, but they are track stars in different ways. And that is okay. There is actually beauty in that diversity, which is exactly what the Bible shows us. That there is beauty in diversity. It's puzzling to me that we have some who, uh, while trumpeting the cause of diversity, would also demand that there be sameness. And what nature, and I would say the Bible teach us, is that no, there is 
diversity and that diversity is beautiful. It is because we are not the same that uh, it is beautiful. So that's the first way this text and this biblical idea challenge us, our culture, our world. Uh, but the second way that this challenges, and this, uh, there's, there's really two themes we're going to look at, that of authority and that of equality. The second way it challenges is uh, the idea that authority, to have authority, is the same as superiority. That because I am in charge, I am therefore better. That I am a qualitatively better person because I have authority over you. Now, that's a, that's a common cultural notion. We're going to dive into that a little bit. But that also is not true in the scriptures. The Bible also does not bear that out. In fact, as we're going to see, that the Bible's idea of authority is not one of superiority, but one of service. So we're going to look at both of those ideas. Let's go ahead and start with authority. Uh, Particularly how this passage portrays and how the Bible portrays humble authority. Humble authority. Look again at verse 3. We see that There is clearly an authority structure. There's clearly a a hierarchy here. Paul says, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Paul is saying just as the son submits to his father's will. So also the believing man or husband submits to the Lord Jesus and the wife then ought to submit to her husband. That doesn't mean by the way, that the wife does not have to submit to Jesus, or that if you're an unmarried woman, uh, that you have to go find a man to submit to. Uh, that is not what Paul is saying. He's simply pointing out the hierarchical structure in marriage and in the church. Okay? Um, he's also not saying that women don't have Christ as their head. He's not saying that. He's simply saying that within the home, within the church, there is a God-ordained pattern of submission and authority. And that at least in this case, in Corinth, the visible symbol of that authority in verse 5 was some kind of head covering. All right, now this is where for us it gets kind of murky um, because we don't really know. Uh, Corinth was a Greco-Roman city uh, near Eastern, so it's possible, probable even we have, uh, we have sculptures and stuff that show women wearing veils, right? It was, it was part of being a woman in that culture to cover your head. That was part of, that was part of being female, okay? So uh, while the situation's a little bit murky to us, what it looks like is happening in Corinth is they were blurring the lines between male and female, between husband and wife. Uh, Some of the women, it appears, were participating in worship with their head coverings removed, right? And so appearing to be or trying to be men. And it seems as though some men were covering their heads, again, in the Roman style. That was common in worship. They took their togas and they put them over the top of their heads. Paul says, no, 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 that's not how, that's not how we do this, right? You uncover your head as a sign of your maleness before God. Uh, and ladies, you need to cover your head as a sign of your femaleness before God. Now, I cannot tell you why those particular things represent, why the head covering that, that's, that's a cultural part that we don't fully grasp. But underneath that cultural truth is that it appears that some in Corinth were saying, uh, I'm not, 
you know, they, they were they were bucking authority. They wanted to look like men or they wanted to look like women. And Paul is saying, no, you need to embrace your roles before God. Right? Men need to act like men. Women need to act like women. Now, what that cultural thing is for us um, is up to debate. These These things change. Over time, right? Even in the United States, ladies used to wear hats to church. I don't see anybody, uh, any any ladies wearing a hat to church. Um, so that is no longer an issue for us. But I think the principle still stands. Uh, and Paul, of course, he brings up all this about women shaving or cutting their hair short. What he's saying is that in Corinthian society, that was a shameful thing. In fact, if a woman was caught in adultery... Uh, and the Old Testament law, I believe, did this as well, right? Her head was to be shaved. So it was, a, it was a sign of immodesty and shame. And Paul is basically saying, you need to act consistently. If you want, ladies, your glory's in your long hair, so wear the long hair the way women do in Corinth. If you want to act like an immodest woman, then act like an immodest woman. But don't be both. Act in accordance with who God has made you today. So, does that mean that women should wear hats in church or that men should cut their hair short? I don't think so. Uh, I think Paul is pointing to a cultural practice that expressed his main point about the roles of men and women in the church. So I kind of want to view these two things as side-by-side comparisons. We're going to talk about men and women and authority in the church and men and women and equality in the church. Okay? But even those words rankle us a little bit, don't they? Submission and authority. Let's just do a little bit of of word association. This is where I throw a word out, and not out loud, but in your head. I want you to, like, what are, how does that make you feel? What words come to mind? Again, don't say it out loud, just say it in your head. Authority. Submission. How many of you, well, don't raise your hands. Um, for how many of you was that a, was that a positive experience, right? I would say that for most of us, the idea of authority, when I say the word authority, the first things that I thought of, heavy-handed, autocratic, dictator, burdensome. Now, maybe, maybe you're not as much as a, of, a, of a rebel as me. I don't think I would have put myself in that category, but, um, right, I... When I think of authority and submission, I hear heavy-handed. Actually, when I hear submission, it takes me back to um, my brief high school fascination with professional wrestling, um, where they have uh, you have submission holds, right? Where where one wrestler puts the other in such a painful hold that they submit, that they give up uh, before they're injured or pass out. Right? That's, that's actually used in, in many martial arts. That's not the Bible's idea of submission, by the way. Though, I would argue that some have done that. And I think that's why we have such an averse reaction to authority. So many people in authority have abused their authority. I mean, the headlines right now are full, both Roman Catholic and Protestant, full of church leaders who have abused their authority. But I would argue that the problem is not with the idea of authority. I would say even that God-given authority is good. The problem is with those who abuse it. So, authority, 
How do we begin to see this is good, right? We take our negative notions and we import it. So whenever, whenever we hear passages like this or whenever we hear Paul say in Ephesians 5.22, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We balk, right? We push back, especially, you know, in America, kind of founded on the idea of not liking authority, okay? Um, we, we push back because we have brought these negative experiences and feelings of people who have abused their authority into uh, into the Bible uh, and has polluted our idea of it. But I would argue that's because we don't actually understand or practice submission and authority the way the Bible describes it. Right? There are plenty in the church, outside the church, in marriage, in business, in government. Pretty much wherever you find authority, authority has been abused. So how do we begin to write that? How do we begin to change the way we view authority in the way that the Bible views it? Let's look at, uh, let's look at how Paul does it. Let's see if we can find some examples here. Verse 8. After saying all that about covering the head, in verse 7 actually, Paul says, For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Where does Paul get that? This idea that woman, uh, that, that woman was made for man, that woman came from man. He gets it from Genesis. He gets it from the creation. So let's go back there. Genesis chapter 2. And I would point out that this is a, this is an important enough issue that we may even break it over over two weeks. But Genesis chapter two is kind of the close up. So we see all of creation in Genesis one. Genesis two is kind of a close up creation on uh, account of humanity being created. Genesis chapter two. Look at verse fifteen. The Lord God took the man, which he had formed from the ground, the ground in an earlier verse. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man. So there's authority. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, God creates man first. God creates man first, and then He gives him His Word, right? He gives him the law. Do not eat from the fruit of the tree. And so, in creating man and giving him His law, God has delegated authority to man. This is what Paul means when he says man is the image and glory of God. That he is, at least in this particular aspect, he is the reflection of God's dominion. Man is the one who is responsible uh, primarily. He is the one who is held accountable for working and keeping the garden and obeying God's commands. So he is the one who is responsible to God. He is not responsible to any other, any other beings. He is responsible to God. But, man needs help. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
I don't know that any uh, any woman in the room would disagree uh, with this assessment of man. Uh, it is not good that man's alone, right? Um, and now this isn't meant, you know, I, even though I, I have kind of an issue with uh, with modern commercials. Have you ever noticed as you watch commercials portraying the family, like somehow the husband is the buffoon in every commercial? He's like caught in the blinds, you know, and he was just trying to raise him up. Uh, like in the, the wife has to come along and untangle her husband from the blinds and show him how dumb he is. But uh, it is true uh, man needs help. God sees it. Uh, this is the one thing that is not good in creation. As God looks at man, he says it is not good that he is alone. He needs a helper suitable to him. Older translations of English called this help meet, right? And you can hear in that word, his helper is fitted to him. She is his complement. Now listen, God could have created man and woman at exactly the same time, but he did not. And I think one of the reasons, just speculating here, one of the reasons is to show how man, excuse me, how woman complements man. Right? We are, we see a need. God creates man, but there is, there is a piece missing. And so God creates woman, right? They complement each other. It's also important to note that God does not create two men. When, when God says, man needs a helper suited to him, he doesn't give him a buddy. He doesn't give him a best friend. He doesn't give him a guy to go fishing with. Right? As great as those friendship relationships are, man and man do not complement each other. Right? They are not complements the way that man and woman are. And so, man needs some help. And then what we see is uh, in verse 19 uh, down to uh, verse 20 is that God brings, before he creates woman, by the way, God brings all of the animals in front of man. And so man now exercises authority in getting to name the animals. But look at what it says. After he has named all of the animals, at the end of verse 20 it says, but for the man there was not found a helper fit for him. Fellas, I know you love... Your dog, maybe your horse, um, but they are not your complement, okay? All of, all of creation uh, comes before man, and there is no suitable helper found, right? So there's still a missing piece. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. So this is what Paul means. This is, this is where Paul's drawing from in 1 Corinthians. And he says, woman was created from man and created for man. She was taken out of him and she exists to help him out. Because God love him. He needs help. Right? To those, to those who would say, even that word helper is insulting to me. I don't, I am not here to be any man's helper. I want to point out to you that that word for helper here in Genesis refers to the Lord Himself several times throughout the Old Testament where God is the helper of His people. The word helper is not a subservient term. It is not a diminutive term. It is not meant to subjugate the woman to the man's whim. 
It is a term uh, that the Lord Himself employs when He has to help His people. Right? So, ladies, congratulations. You bear a title that God Himself bears. And that is a glorious thing. Right? Alright, so... Um, she is created out of man, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man. He made into a woman, brought her to the man. Then the man said, first love song here, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Now this is incredibly important. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why is that so important? Why do we think to mention that? Because what, what Moses is capturing, what God is capturing for us here, is that this is a moment where man and woman, husband and wife, complement each other, and there is no sin. Right? You've all, well, I don't know that you all have, but uh, maybe you've had that dream before where either you were going to school or going to work or giving a speech and you realize maybe you were in your underwear, right? That nightmare where you woke up like, oh, whew, okay. Um, why, why do we fear that? Why, does that? why does that make us afraid? Actually, if you ask some of my kids, kids in the room, they, may not, they, don't, they aren't as afraid of that as they probably should be. Um, but later on in life, right? That is not, that is something we seek to cover. It is something that we fear because we are ashamed. Right? There is something, there is something that we don't want exposed. Something that we don't want uncovered. And I want to point out to you that in the, that in the creation moment with this first couple, there is nothing that they are afraid of. They are completely vulnerable with each other without fear. That's what the Bible means when it says naked and unashamed. There's nothing to be afraid of. They accept one another completely. There is no judgment. There is no fighting. There is no fear. They are complementing each other and it is perfect and it is beautiful. But what happened? Because every one of us can resonate with the reality, particularly if you're married, but even if you've been in a dating relationship, you know that complimenting does not happen very naturally, right? In fact, we see at the end of Genesis chapter 3. Now, some would say that the hierarchy that Paul talks about, that this idea of, of a man being head over his wife has been the source, is, is the problem. That the idea of authority is the problem. We need to flatten out authority so that women are not taken advantage of, so that everybody has their rights. Like that is, that the idea of authority is the problem. But I'm gonna point out, but, I, but I'm gonna argue, and I think the Bible argues that that is actually not the source of the problem. That is not the source of tension. It's not because we live it out well. It's actually because we fight against it. Genesis chapter 3, um, Eve, the woman, is deceived by the serpent to break God's law. Before you, uh, before you throw that burden on the ladies, fellas, remember who was given the law. Remember who was responsible before God to keep God's commands. Yep, the man who is standing right next to her. 
uh, actually eats the fruit and eats the fruit himself. So uh, they rebel, they reject God, they reject his commands. And it says this, verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3, to the woman, this is God now speaking, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then check this out. Your desire, my translation says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. But he shall rule over you. So this idea of rebellion and domineering, that's not part of the original design, but a result of the fall is that a wife's desire is to subjugate her husband. Right? She wants to push him. She wants to nag him. She wants to say, you're not doing this right. And the husband's desire is to abuse his authority by ruling over his wife. That word for rule there is a negative one, right? To hold her down, to dominate her. That's where the problem comes in. The problem is not with authority. The problem is that we don't know how to, how to hold and submit. We don't know how to, we don't know how to have authority and do submission, right? So the problem is with sin, not with the Bible's idea of submission and authority. So how do we, how do we get back to that? How do we, uh, how do we get back to that? Paul says this, and we'll, we'll close here and look at the idea of equality next week. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to turn there. Ephesians 5.22 So we know what it's supposed to look like. We know what happened. I did forget to point out, by the way, when we were in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 3, as soon as the man and woman eat the fruit, do you know what it says about them? They knew what, they knew they were naked and they hid. Right? That perfect harmony, where they were unafraid with one another and unashamed, that perfect harmony was broken, and now they hide, right? That's really, that's really the issue, is that we're hiding from God. So, Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, if you're inclined to hear that as uh, domineering, as uh, a shackle, if you if you hear the word submission there, which some translations translate respect, you hear that and you go, nah, can't do it, okay? Or, gentlemen, if you hear that and you go, that's right, she better submit, okay? Um Fellas, the, the number of words uh, given to the women about how they're... It's interesting, both Paul and Peter address this topic. Uh, both of them, the words that they say to women are relatively few. They call, they call wives to submit, but leave it right there. However, gentlemen... Verse 25. Husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. If at any point, gentlemen, you want to take advantage of uh, your wife's submission, I encourage you to revisit Paul's words in Ephesians 5, where we are called to love like Jesus loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? He died for her. He gave up his own life so that she could be saved, so that she could be cleansed, so that she could be could continue to be shaped in his image. That is what authority looks like in the Bible. That's the humble authority that God calls husbands to. So when Paul and Corinth is telling men to look like men and women to look like women, he's saying, embrace the beauty of your diversity. Wives, when you take your veil off, you're looking at your husband and you're rejecting him. You're refusing to submit to him. He is your head. You can embrace that submission. Just like the church embraces submission to Jesus. Now, Men, act like men. Don't abuse your authority. You do not financially, emotionally, verbally, or physically seek to dominate and manipulate your wife. That is not how Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church by giving up his life. Men, that is your glory. That is the glory as you bear it before your wife and for the watching church. How do we do that? How do we embrace true manhood and true womanhood? Well, we go to the one who gave up his life for the church. What does it mean to be a man? Right? It means to look at Jesus. How was he a man? He is by no means effeminate, right? The, the idea that we have of Jesus is kind of this effeminate floating about two to three inches above the ground, always speaking in soft tones, right? You miss the Jesus where he's cracking the whip in the temple, all right? That's not Jesus, okay? I mean, that window right there, that's not Jesus, okay? But we look at the life of Jesus, that's what it means to be a man. We give ourselves up just as Jesus gave himself up. And so the question that we're so prone to ask is, especially in our current moment with all of the debate over uh, gender and sexuality, right? We are, we are obsessed with this question of who am I, right? Who am I? And I think the Bible looks at us and it says, that's asking the wrong question. The question is not who are you. The question is whose are you? Do you belong to the Lord Jesus? Then go to Him and learn what it means to embrace your God-given maleness and God-given femaleness. Let's pray. 
Father, a, a touchy subject, a difficult subject, and yet one uh, that your word addresses. And so we need to address it ourselves. We need to apply these things. God, there's so much that can be said here, uh, so many different ways that we can apply this. Would you help us? Would you help us to do that? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.